So from a legal standpoint, which is what your listeners are interested in, is, yeah, military has nothing to worry about when it comes to civil liability. Law enforcement has everything to worry about when it comes to the civil liability. And under those circumstances, they're never going to let a device like a robot or other mechanical device uh, operate independently without human control. Uh, what you had in Alice was really an explosive removal robot being used for a different kind of purpose. Uh, and I would think also even the use of explosives by police, in that case, was pretty novel and poses significant kinds of risks. So it's, it was a really kind of exceptional in a, in a number of different ways. But I think going forward, if we're going to see the widespread adoption of these kinds of robotic technologies by police that are doing other sorts of activities, uh, there would need to be some kind of standardization, I would think. Uh, and you'd want to try to do that at a federal level. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and also co-host another Legal Talk Network podcast called Law Technology Now with Monica Bay. And this is Craig Williams coming to you from scorchingly hot, sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. And for once, Craig, I got to say it's scorchingly hot and sunny here in Boston as well. So it's not just Southern California. Before we introduce today's topic, I would like to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio is the world's leading cloud-based legal practice management software. Thousands of lawyers and legal professionals trust Clio to help grow and simplify their practices. Learn more at Clio.com. That's C-L-I-O dot com. Well, in July, a sniper, later identified as Micah Xavier Johnson, opened fire at a march against police shootings in downtown Dallas, Texas, killing five police officers and wounding many others. After a 45-minute gun battle and hours of negotiation with the sniper, who was holed up in a parking garage, Dallas Police Chief David Brown gave an order to his SWAT team to come up with a plan to end the mayhem before more police officers were killed. And Bob, this led to the use of a robot, the Remote Tech Androx Mark 5A1, manufactured by Northrop Grumman, and with a pound of C4 explosive later sent in and eventually killing the sniper, no real word on how the robot's doing. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at the recent tragedy in Dallas, Texas, the use of robots by law enforcement, the criticism of them, and ethics and policy regulations when it comes to the use of robots. And to help us talk about this today, we have two guests joining us. Let me introduce our first guest. He is Edward Obayashi deputy sheriff and special counsel for the Plumas County Sheriff's Office, also a licensed attorney in the state of California. Ed's law office specializes in providing law enforcement legal services to California law enforcement agencies, and he also serves as a legal advisor and legal consultant for numerous law enforcement agencies in California. 
his uh, duties as a deputy sheriff include patrol, investigations, administration, training, and providing legal advice to uh, department management and personnel. He is also an official U.S. government and international use of force expert. So we're very happy to uh, welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer today, Edward Obayashi. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Craig. And Bob, our next guest is Dr. Peter Asaro. He is a philosopher of science, technology, and media. Dr. Asaro is an assistant professor and director of graduate programs for the School of Media Studies at the New York School for Public Engagement in New York City. He's the co-founder of the International Committee for Robot Arms Control and has written on lethal robotics from the perspective of war theory and human rights. Dr. Asaro's research examines agency and autonomy, liability, punishment, and privacy and surveillance as it applies to consumer robots, industrial automation, smart buildings, and autonomous vehicles. Welcome to the show, Dr. Peter Asaro. It's a pleasure to be here. Just going to turn to you, Dr. Asaro, first, Peter, to find out, uh, just give us a little bit of an overview and a background of how robots are used and how they come into killing people. Well, I think, you know, it's important to to draw the distinction between policing systems and military systems. A lot of what we're doing with the International Committee for Robot Arms Control is working with an international campaign to stop killer robots at at the UN, uh, really trying to develop an international treaty that would prohibit fully autonomous uh, weapon systems. And those would be weapon systems that would automatically select targets and engage them with lethal force independently of meaningful human control. We've seen the development of a lot of robotic systems in the military, including remote-operated drones, uh, but you still have humans that are controlling those systems and, crucially, making the targeting decisions for those systems. Uh, What we're really trying to prohibit is the extension of that sort of technological evolution into systems that would use software, sensors, cameras to make those kinds of decisions. What we've also seen is a lot of militarization of police and a lot of transfer of these kinds of military technologies into police forces. So within the United States, it's been mostly uh, bomb disposal robots and some small drones uh, for surveillance purposes. But we've seen certain companies, uh, there's a South African company that's developed a small drone that's armed with tear gas, uh, there's been some attempts to put tasers and other kinds of uh, weapon systems onto these uh, drones or uh, small robots. And so I think there's a concern both at the military level of the autonomy question, but I think even within police forces, are we going to have armed robots? What kinds of situations are those being developed for? How are they actually going to end up being used? I think they go a long way towards protecting police officers in dangerous situations, and that's a lot of the motivation behind the bomb disposal robots, and uh, that's why Dallas had this robot to begin with. Uh, using it as a weapon or weaponizing these systems, I think, raises a number of concerns. Uh, this was certainly a very exceptional circumstance, but if it became a more regular occurrence uh, or many police departments had this kind of system you know, in their arsenal, as it were, they would find new kinds of uses for it, and that would be, I think, potentially very concerning. Edward Obayashi, uh, we've read uh, reports saying that this was the first, I guess, lethal use of a robot by a police department. But what have you seen uh, in terms of police departments using robots? What's Peter's talked a little bit about the military uses. What have you seen going on with police departments around the country? You know, what um, Peter says is uh, you know, very well taken. Uh, you know, there is a perception issue here 
when it comes to uh, police tactics, we all know, you know, whatever the news of the day may be, if the police have shot someone or especially something like this, which seems, uh, you know, a matter of first impression, it's going to take the headlines, especially, you know, from the public perception. You know, we have, uh, you know, today's media, I'm talking about both uh, news, uh, entertainment, et cetera, you know, people, um, everybody has an impression of uh, RoboCop, Terminator, and it conjures all sorts of images of a futuristic police enforcement type atmosphere. Uh, so uh, please get that. The reality, though, is that these devices, these robots or mechanized devices have been around for decades. Uh, they have just gotten more and more advanced to the point where, uh, you know, there's a lot of optional choices, you know, for police uh, law enforcement to utilize them under certain circumstances. I'll give you a good analogy. Uh, several months ago in San Bernardino, uh, California, there was a high-speed pursuit uh, down the uh, interstate highway, I believe it was 215. A vehicle was uh, traveling in pursuit at about over 100 miles an hour. Deputy vehicles were pursuing as the wrong way uh, chase, uh, especially in that area of Southern California. Traffic was mounting, and the sheriff's office decided to terminate the pursuit by shooting the vehicle from a helicopter. Uh, there was a lot of coverage about that uh, ethical debate about uh, terminating a pursuit using deadly force on a vehicle uh, that had been previously unheard of. However, again, a helicopter is another technological tool. It is advanced. It's a weapons platform when it needs to be. And in this case, whether it's a robot or a uh, helicopter, when it's utilized in that matter for the first time, in other words, death results, everyone, uh, understandably, is going to ask questions. Now, the key here is whether it's autonomous or not. I can't imagine a day uh, coming where a, or maybe I can, but uh, uh, not in the near future, I hope not, uh, that police departments will ever relinquish human control over a device, never mind what it is. The um, key difference between the military use and police use is going to, whether uh, military, yes, they do have autonomous capability. Police will never do that because of one major difference between the military and the police, and that's going to be the issue of civil liability. So from a legal standpoint, which is, I believe, what your listeners are interested in, is, yeah, military has nothing to worry about when it comes to civil liability. Law enforcement has everything to worry about when it comes to the civil liability. And under those circumstances, they're never going to let a device like a robot or other mechanical device uh, operate independently without human control. What are the ethics, Dr. Saro, in these issues? How do we decide whether a robot can kill a life or whether it's a human that kills a life? And is there an issue with respect to the differing detachments that you have? Is it a Paul's graph type of a situation where if you're so far away of it, there's no liability, but if you're right on top of it, there is? Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of interesting questions here. I think you know the basic legal and ethical question in some sense is unchanged regardless of the tool or weapon or system in a sense, you have to justify the use of lethal force from the start. And I think uh, a lot of questions come up about, you know, even in the example just given about a high-speed pursuit, whether it's really necessary to kill this person or, you know, let them go. And if they pose an imminent immediate threat to another individual, then that's a justification ethically and legally for using lethal force. 
if you simply suspect or have a sense that there's some probability they could, you know, kill somebody in the future or cause significant bodily harm, then, you know, then you don't have quite, or you might not have that full legal standard for the use of lethal force. And that's something that's a sort of interesting. Most of the state laws and federal requirements for use of lethal force by police don't actually match the international United Nations standards for the use of force in this regard. Primarily, they permit police to shoot fleeing suspects in many states. Uh, which would be prohibited in the UN guidelines. So part of that is whether you know the US standards that we're following are are up to international standards. Uh, but I think if you have a situation where it's it is in fact justified, the use of a kind of robotic technology, especially a remote technology where you have a human who's making the decision still about the use of lethal force, uh, which I think is a moral requirement that you actually have a human being who makes the legal and ethical judgment which is why an autonomous lethal system should be prohibited uh, because they're not really capable of making that legal judgment. But if you have the human making that legal judgment and now they're just remote, uh, so they, you know, they have this remote control robot or they're using a drone of some sort. I think what you also have is that's different than the case where the police officer would be face to face with the suspect and that that police officer is not in danger for their own life. So self-defense is not a legitimate sort of argument for the use of lethal force uh, in that case, uh, because the robot is there and they're the one that might be damaged and that's a sort of property damage. It's not a life-threatening situation. Now, if the person is threatening others, third parties in the vicinity, uh, or to do some you know, egregious crime and setting off bombs or something like that, then I think you have a different situation and the remoteness, again, doesn't matter because the threat doesn't depend on the presence of the police officer themselves. So it's a sort of complicated transformation of the situation by introducing these kinds of technologies. So on the one hand, it's easy to sort of simplify it and say, well, there's no difference. It's just another way to kill people. But it does, in fact, change the way you make these judgments about whether the use of force is really necessary. Is there also a concern that if you're making it easier to kill people, and if you're making it possible to kill people in a situation where your own uh, your own safety doesn't have to be threatened, that it will be used more frequently. I think that's a definite concern. Um, and, and it's also the kind of the, the mission creep, uh, which we've seen already, I think, with SWAT teams. Uh, and the SWAT team actually was evolved as a concept to respond to the sniper in the University of Texas in the 1960s. And when you have that kind of sniper situation, it's really good to have a, a trained SWAT team. Uh, but we also see SWAT teams being used to serve regular warrants, break up poker games, you know, bust people for growing marijuana in their closet and things like that. And so that kind of mission creep uh, or use of that style of technique or t- technology in different ways is, is concerning. Edward, what do you think? Is there a difference here between killing somebody with a robot and police use of a, a gun to kill somebody? Uh, no, there's no difference. You know, as Peter, I uh, believe, stated earlier, uh, you know, regardless of the device, whether it's a knife, a gun, taser, uh, as long as lethal force is justified under the circumstances, it's not going to matter what was used. The officers have lost their guns during fights and have had to resort to secondary weapons, uh, even sharp-edged weapons, a backup knife, you know, whatever it may be. You know, not to be uh, flip about it, but let's say uh, tomorrow suddenly a ray gun, 
you know, a Star Trek type taser, phaser was available. The courts would not differentiate uh, between a traditional handgun or that phaser, how it was used, when it was used, as long as the circumstances justified it, same as the robot here. As I mentioned earlier, it's the perception of the newness of this, the fact that this was the very first time, apparently, that a robot had been used to you know, kill a suspect under the circumstances. But that touches upon a point you asked earlier. Police departments across the nation are not going to reveal what kind of weaponry they have, what kind of tactics they're going to utilize for obvious security reasons. And I think this is one of those situations where it took you know, many by surprise, but the fact that it was just so new in its application, and again, it creates that perception of where are we headed. Uh, and believe me, law enforcement managers get that. They do get that, but they're not going to, they can't sacrifice uh, public security, departmental security, operational security, you know, for that purpose. It's always a balancing act. How does artificial intelligence play into this? Are we going to see artificial intelligence develop as a defense when it takes over and kills a person? Well, I don't, I don't think the kinds of systems we're looking at today are what we'd think of as a human-like intelligence or artificial intelligence in that sense. Uh, in the sort of engineering sense of artificial intelligence, what you really have is a lot of pattern recognition, machine learning algorithms, things like that, that uh, are going to be used more and more for uh, like predictive policing, uh, trying to figure out you know which areas or which individuals are likely to be suspects in the future. Um, and we've already seen some of that in Chicago. That technology being used, that's a kind of big data, artificial intelligence. But these smaller systems, again, they're mostly remote control because you rely on the human's vision and manual control to do most of the tasks. Because you don't really know what bombs are going to be built like, it's very difficult to pre-program robots to disarm bombs in general. Um, and you know, AI might serve useful functions in the future in terms of grasping and manipulating and problem solving in those kinds of situations. But I don't think they're going to be replacing humans soon. And they're certainly not going to be anywhere near the capability of making these contextual decisions about whether the use of force is necessary in a given situation, or even whether an individual poses a significant threat in a given situation, you would have to be able to understand the physical dynamics of the world in a very sophisticated way to understand when somebody is using, you know, a hammer or a stick as a weapon, uh, or even visual recognition of knives and guns uh, would be fairly tricky. But it's, you know, open carry can be legal, so simply seeing a gun doesn't necessarily mean it's a threat. Uh, and then understanding the psychological intention of, of individuals and whether they intend to carry out uh, a threat or commit violence. It's very difficult to, for humans to judge, and it's much more difficult for computers to try to figure that out. We just don't know how to program that. Is there a more basic uh, security issue here, one of security? I assume that police are communicating with these robots wirelessly in some way. Can those communications be hacked or intercepted so that a third party could take control of a robot in a crisis situation? Like, say, for example, the victim and turn it on the police? Uh, potentially. It could be very sophisticated. One of my students was uh, actually operated the EOD robots in the U.S. Army in Afghanistan, and they would regularly use uh, electronic jamming systems for the whole surrounding area before they would even deploy the robot. But that was mostly because they were concerned with remote triggering devices, 
being used to set off the roadside bombs, but it also meant to shut down their communications with everything but their robot because it's designed to operate in the, you know, specifically in this context where they're jamming every other, you know, frequency except the one that the robot uses. So there's ways to sort of make those secure, at least in the military sense. You know, hacking into drones has been done. You can spoof them, you can take control of them, uh, all sorts of things. So in a wireless situation, that's always possible. We need to take a short break uh, at this point. Please stay with us, and we're going to be uh, back after a few messages from our sponsors to talk more about the legal issues of robots and policing. Clio is an invaluable software solution for law firms of all sizes, handling all the demands of your growing practice from a single cloud-based platform. Clio enhances your firm with features such as matter and document management, time tracking, and even billing. Clio is an effortless tool that helps lawyers focus on what they do best, which is practice law. Learn more about Clio at Clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and with us today is Attorney Ed Obayashi, the Deputy Sheriff and Special Counsel for the Plumas County Sheriff's Office and a licensed attorney in the state of California, as well as Dr. Peter Asaro, Assistant Professor and Director of Graduate Programs for the School of Media Studies at the New School for Public Engagement in New York City. In our last segment, we've been discussing the tragedy in Dallas and the use of robots in law enforcement. We've recently been talking about ethics and wireless issues and people taking things over. What are the militaristic applications of these robots in terms of the police's use of them? I mean, should the police really be using a militaristic-style robot in a public citizens-type environment where we are not at war with our citizens, presumably? As you may recall, I'm sure our listeners uh, can all remember the Ferguson uh, impetus regarding the um, notoriety, if you will, uh, of this issue regarding surplus military equipment being made available to civilian agencies, sheriff's offices, police agencies, and uh, other law enforcement type agencies. The uh, public may not have known that this has been going on for decades. Most uh, departments, um, when I say most, uh, keep, please keep in mind the large departments uh, in the country, uh, LAPD, LASO, Chicago PD, NYPD, Houston, all those large agencies are exceptions. Most, uh, by far, I uh, don't have the exact uh, statistics, but by far the overwhelming majority of law enforcement agencies in the United States are probably in the neighborhood of less than 100 sworn officers. Uh, there are many, many uh, departments that have less than 50 sworn uh, officers. Uh, those departments rely heavily on this government program. And the images coming out of Ferguson, again, understandably so, uh, the perception was that we may be becoming a police state. In speaking to managers, uh, police departments, they're very much aware of that perception. But at the same time, in today's ever-changing, ever-growing threat, especially, and I hate to uh, use the uh, issue of terrorism as a crutch, but it is, uh, it is not a crutch. It's not exaggerated. Uh, as terrorist acts become much more sophisticated, as you and I and everybody else have uh, begun to appreciate, the traditional tools uh, that police have used uh, you know, are just are not effective enough during a life and dangerous situation. 
decades ago when none of these issues you know was present or concern uh, the cop on the beat walking without a vest, you know, without body uh, protection, uh, just uh, walking a beat with his nightstick, a pair of handcuffs, and a revolver, uh, that was fine and well. But not anymore. You know, not when uh, the terrorists and uh, criminals are free to uh, arm themselves you know, to their desire. At the same time, the uh, police have always been, have had to react to that. And so, you know, again, when you have a new technology that is suddenly introduced under these circumstances, and especially under the um, tragedies involving uh, officer-involved shootings. Uh, yes, the perception uh, you know, regarding the concern for a police state is magnified. Uh, but if you think about uh, when I first started, I don't know, <laughs> not to be uh, um, funny here, but I don't know how old uh, you know, my colleagues here in the show are, but I started 25 years ago. And that's when tasers are just coming into law enforcement use. I clearly recall the outcry and the concern by the uh, uh, general public and uh, media and just law commentators, uh, you know, regarding these tasers. You know, they thought, you know, where are we going on this? And but now it's, uh, you know, there've been uh, obviously number of. landmark guiding cases regarding the use of tasers, uh, when it's appropriate, when it's not, uh, et cetera. So again, new technology is always going to be just, for lack of a better term, it's always going to be a point of interest, especially when it's in the hands of law enforcement and how it's used, just because of the mere fact that it is law enforcement. And everybody obviously has a uh, stake in how uh, law enforcement conducts itself. Uh, so again, it's always the newness of the tactic or the uh, tool. Uh, who, know, who knows what tomorrow may bring? I read that most of the uh, major police departments in the country and many smaller legal departments have robots, in fact. And I'm not sure a lot of people are aware of that. Do we need, in either of your opinion, legislation uh, of any kind, either on a state level or on a federal level, to address the use of robots in law enforcement? Uh, I don't believe so. I don't know what area of the use of robots any type of legislation would address other than, say, you know, Fourth Amendment issues dealing with privacy issues, like uh, a robot being used to sniff around a residence for presence of illegal drugs. But when it comes to the issue at hand, use of force, again, the laws that exist, and right so under Graham versus Connor and other U.S. Supreme Court law, uh, you know, they're not going to specify you can't use this particular type of device. It's always going to be what is reasonable under the circumstances, regardless of the type of force. And that's why they can't specify no law, no legislation, no court is going to say, well, you can't use this device. It's always going to be under the principle of what constitutes deadly force. So regardless of whether it's a robot, a taser, a ray gun, a bazooka, whatever it may be, it's going to be what was reasonable under the circumstances, regardless of the means that were used to kill someone. Well, we've just about reached the end of our program, and it's time to wrap up and get your final thoughts as well as your contact information. So, Ed, let's turn to you. My contact information first is uh, Edward Obayashi. My phone number uh, is always accessible. Uh, it's, it's area code 619-857-2359. Uh, 
my uh, law office email is eco, like Ed Charles Obayashi, at lawcop.net. And um, I'm always available for uh, any questions, comments, uh, et cetera. So thank you very much for having me today. Yeah, and uh, you can reach me uh, on the Internet at Peter Asaro. That's A-S-A-R-O dot O-R-G uh, is my website, or at Peter Asaro is my Twitter handle if you want to hear all about military robots and robotics technology in general. Uh, and just, I guess, a response to a couple of these last questions, there has been uh, some legislation in the state of Virginia that requires uh, warrants for the police to use drones for surveillance and things like that, very much uh, under the Fourth Amendment, as Ed mentioned. And I think there is concerns when we, we move into weaponizing these systems. Uh, and there would need to be some kind of regulation, I think, in place for the companies who would manufacture such systems to feel that that was an acceptable use. Uh, what you had in Dallas was really a, a, a explosive removal robot being used for a, a different kind of purpose. Uh, and I would think also that even the use of explosives by police in that case was, was pretty novel uh, and poses significant kinds of risks uh, in terms of the structural integrity of the building and uh, the capacity for uh, you know hurting other individuals in the area so it's it was a really kind of exceptional in a, in a number of different ways but i think going forward if we're going to see the widespread adoption of uh these kinds of robotic technologies by police that are doing other other sorts of activities uh, there would need to be some kind of standardization i would think uh, and you'd want to try to do that at a federal level to ensure that you know civil rights are being respected and so forth Great. Well, thank you both for participating in our show today. That brings us to the end of our show. Bob? Thanks to both of you for taking the time to be with us today. And to all of our listeners out there, thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic when you want legal think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.